I'm Jarrett Murphy from CityLimits.org. And this is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette. We're about to welcome to the air uh, Dr. Mary Bassett, who was the city's uh, health commissioner for the first several years under Mayor de Blasio and now is a, an academic at Harvard University, has dedicated her life to public health. And Ben should be discussing some of the elements of the crisis that occur to her as particularly interesting and worrisome, both as a former city official and as a person who has studied this and practiced this kind of health for her entire career. Indeed. And uh, I believe we have Dr. Bassett on the line with us now. Dr. Bassett, are you there? I am. I well, am. thanks so much thanks for, for joining us here on WBAI. This is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette with Jarrett Murphy from City Limits. Uh, we want to mention for folks that not only are the former New York City Health Commissioner, but uh, currently the, the director of the FXB Center for Health and Human Rights at Harvard University. Uh, but thanks for thanks for joining us. Thanks. I've long been a fan of WBAI, so thanks for having me. And us as well. Uh, we are all, all human beings uh, have a certain reaction to this crisis, which is to be frightened by it, to be stunned by the death toll. As a scientist and as a public health official, Dr. Bassett, what are the things that jump out at you? What do you find interesting, disturbing? What do you want to know more about? Well, I mean, of course, uh, this is a virus, this novel coronavirus that none of us had even heard about until January of this year. So it is rather stunning that uh, that we've seen this epidemic unfold and become a pandemic. I don't think that there's any question that this is a once-in-a-century phenomenon. Uh, so it's changed our lives, uh, and, uh, and it uh, has also revealed the many vulnerabilities that um, that many societies have, uh, but ours in particular. Um, so uh, I would say that it was entirely predictable uh, that we would have such a massive um, uh, outbreak in the United States. Um, we have had galloping inequality for decades now. Uh, we have uh, many people who work under precarious circumstances and uh, can't afford not to work. Uh, so they, um, they have kept going to work. Um, many low-wage workers are uh, essential workers, and they, of course, are continuing to go to work. Uh, we have um, really astoundingly among wealthy nations uh, no national health insurance. Um, and uh, even before the job loss associated with COVID-19, we ran 27, 28 million people with no health insurance, half people between the ages of 18 and 65 underinsured. Um, and, uh, you know, that situation is only going to increase um, in a city like New York or in all the urban areas where the cost of housing, I mean, I'm in Boston now. I, I, the cost of housing is really high here, too. The cost of high housing means that um, many people, not only low-income people, uh, you know, live in, in quite crowded circumstances uh, where the public health advice to um, stay six feet away um, is just doesn't make sense. Many people live in multi-generational households. Um, where, uh, where there may be an elder part of the household. All of these um, were uh, a setup for this highly contagious virus. And in addition, 
uh, we know that even before COVID, there were very strong uh, gradients in, um, in, in the experience of common diseases, so that people of color, low-income people, were much more likely to have obesity, diabetes, high blood pressure, asthma, uh, conditions that we now know make people not necessarily more susceptible to infection with this virus, but more likely to have a bad outcome. So it's hard to believe that New York City had just one death at the beginning of March and now is uh, logging in over over 10,000 that, um, that the United States um, has had a, a similar trajectory. Doctor, but I don't point- think we should think that this is that this can't be changed. Um, I, I don't. This was not, you know, this was not a necessary outcome. Um, and, and I guess that, that that's a very important funny. important point because we're coming to the point where people are going to start looking back to ask questions about uh, on every level of government how how could this have been avoided? And I think a lot of those questions will focus on a health system itself of surveillance and reaction. But the health disparities you've talked about, obviously they cross from the health system itself to very deep-seated social inequalities. And, and that's something you focused on a lot when you were health commissioner. How much yeah. of preparing for a health threat like this, how much of protecting people against it is a health issue and something that the health system could achieve versus you know, addressing social inequalities that are well beyond the scope of, of any public health system? Well, I think actually our health is something that's the outcome of many things, not just health care. Health care is probably there for the failures of other parts of our lives to protect us from, um, from uh, and, and maintain our health. Uh, I, I, first of all, let, let me just say that uh, this is uh, a phenomenon that's been witnessed again and again, that, uh, that epidemics uncover the, the fissures in our society, and this one has done the same. The Ebola crisis did that in uncovering what urbanization meant in, in parts of West Africa. And uh, the, you know, that's what, uh, that's what epidemics do. Uh, and it reflects, as you're saying, not just um, people's ability to get health care, which we all should have the right to, uh, but also the ability of people to have decent lives. And that refers to everything about our lives. So, um, you know, housing and uh, we need equity, not just in health outcomes, but in all aspects of, of everyday life, housing, transport, um, you know, access to healthy food. All of these are part of what it means to, to have your health. I want to ask you, Dr. Bassett, um, about sort of on the, um, I know we're talking both on the sort of um, science side and the social side. Um, yeah. On the science side, do you, do, would, it, would you say that um, one of the biggest things that we fail to understand and still don't really understand is how this disease spreads and travels and how potent it is? Um, or what's your sort of assessment of how that has? Well, yeah. Developed? That's a really good question, and I think that the that the thing that people really have trouble getting their head around is exponential spread. I, I had trouble getting my head around it, and you can understand how someone might say, look, we only have four cases, we only have 10 cases, 
And that is not the right way to think of, uh, of a virus or any communicable agent um, that spreads uh, exponentially, meaning that each person infects more than one person. So that if one person infects two people, then those two people infect another two people, and you go two, four, eight, 16, 32, 64. Let me see how far I can keep going with this. Mm -hmm. One, 28, 256, 512, and then you're up to having the number of people infected increase by thousands uh, in every cycle, which may be four or five days. So that's how, uh, that's how you're supposed to have looked at the case in front of you today. Not that it was one case, but the reverberations of exponential flow, of um, growth going forward. And I just think that a lot of people um, had trouble getting their head around that, even though exponential spread had occurred in China uh, mm. and uh, would occur in Europe. Um, and that's what we've witnessed here. Um, that's what you've yeah. witnessed in New York. We've wit witnessed here in Boston. So yeah. it's a highly contagious virus. Um, that's very clear. And it spreads through the air. So nobody ever thought that it would be possible to keep it from, well, nobody I know ever thought it would be possible to keep it from arriving, um, arriving in the United States. Tell us from the vantage point of having run this, um, you know, obviously renowned uh, New York City Health Department. There's the the, the city has a, a public health laboratory that's been um, obviously touted and discussed some. When when there's an outbreak like this somewhere of something we don't really know that much about, how does the New York City Health Department? How does it work? Try, yeah. Try to understand well, it. Yeah. Well, I mean. As you said, this is uh, the New York City Health Department is one of the best uh, urban health departments in the country for sure, and maybe in the world. So, I, you know, the, I'm up here at Harvard. If I mention anybody who works in communicable disease to the faculty at here, they they uh, they revere um, mm -hmm. the expertise in, in the New York City Health Department. Um, so. You know, what the public health lab, which does, which is really a sort of hidden jewel in the crown of the New York City Health Department, is often they start doing the tests. Um, the CDC uh, comes up with a kind of test, and then they uh, hand it out to various public health labs. Then those labs start doing the tests when they're not yet available in the commercial sector. And that's what happened with Ebola. It's what happened with Zika. It's what happened... Uh, with um, with the legionnaires, the the public health lab was a resource for rapid testing. And in this case, as you know, uh, the CDC just wasn't making test kits available. And when they did, they didn't work. So this was, um, uh, a, you know, a, a really botched um, botched rollout of the testing, which there's still a price that the country is paying for. And it it was, I, I can't really understand it because the tests existed, the World Health Organization was making them available. Why the U.S. didn't just adopt the test that the rest of the world was using, you know, I, I, I can't really say except that there was a desire to, you know, make it, make it themselves. So that's what the public health lab um, 
would do, and I'm sure it's what they, although I have no direct knowledge, I'm sure it's what they wanted to do. Um, they, um, you know, the one patient who tested positive for Ebola was the test. I was sitting in the public health lab uh, when that test was being run. So it's a really outstanding lab and an enormous resource, uh, um, but they don't work in, in a vacuum, and we've seen a real failure of, uh, of federal leadership um, and uh, in the response to this um, to the COVID-19 outbreak. And it really has been, um, you know, display, put on full display how fragmented the public health is, how lacking it is in national coordination, and how fragmented, uh, privatized, and uh, our healthcare delivery system is. So, you, you know, I mean, there's going to be a lot of hindsight here. Uh, but the main thing, I think, uh, for every place that has an ongoing outbreak is that the, the focus can't just be now on ventilators, 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 are there enough beds on it? That, that's, you know, we have to, try, we have to take care of the sick, uh, but there's still an uh, important role to play in reducing the number of infections. And uh, that is going to need testing and the ability to act on testing. And that's the challenge that faces health departments across the country. Doctor, you did uh, navigate the city or help the navig- city navigate through, as you mentioned, the Ebola scare, which you know was devastating in Africa the year that it, it touched the city uh, lightly. And it then the, the, Le- the Legionnaire's disease outbreak, I think, the following yeah. year. Go back that's to right. those times and... And tell us, when you were navigating them, were you were you worried that they might achieve the kind of scale that that coronavirus now has? And what were the lessons learned from those experiences? I I wonder, to some degree, the fact that the city navigated them fairly well, if that gave some of us in the public and maybe even some officials uh, some false sense of security. Well, the first thing, of course, is that we, we just haven't seen uh, a, a, an infectious agent like COVID, like this novel coronavirus. It's it's just highly contagious, and um, and that's why it's spreading so widely. Ebola was very different. Um, it is was uh, spread only by contact with uh, the God. I was even mocked, much to my children's pleasure um, in uh, uh, some newspaper, The Onion, I think it was, for my incessant talk about body fluids. But it was only uh, spread by contact with body fluids. So it wasn't spread by um, through the air, by walking by somebody who had Ebola. So we knew that in this country with our capacity of disease detectives and our um, and our resources that there would not be an ongoing transmission of Ebola in our country. The slums in Africa, you know, lack rudimentary 19th century public health. There's no running water. There's no sanitation system. Um, people are are living in um, in in settings where um, where care of the sick means a really high rate of contamination of the environment. So it. And I never had any uh, concern that there would be sustained transmission. My real worry, to be honest with you, was that we would have somebody who was, um, uh, you know, worked in a low-wage job or 
rent, you know, drove a, a livery cab, lived in a household with undocumented workers, uh, was afraid to come forward and expose their household to, you know, other risks, and um, and said we had a, a young doctor who, uh, with a very mild fever, came forward and uh, presented himself for testing. Um, so the um, so in a you know in a way everything worked incredibly well, and, and I also have to acknowledge that the health department in in Bellevue Hospital, and, uh, one of our our premier public hospitals, had had been planning for how to uh, handle a patient with Ebola since July, and the patient showed up in October. Um, so at that time, not only had they been planning, they'd been practicing and drilling, and that was, um, you know, that was a real advantage. Um, so the thing I'm proudest about, though, so all of that was the technical expertise that everybody had the right to expect of the New York City Health Department. And, um, but uh, I'm also really proud of the kind of communications that we use, the the fact that we reached out to the West African community of New York, held town halls, answered questions, um, really worked hard to be completely transparent about what we knew and what we didn't know. So the lessons, I would say, are, of course, good old-fashioned public health and advanced planning, and then, uh, you know, transparency and uh, and a commitment to communicating with communities that we have reason to think are going to be most affected. And that carried over to Legionnaire's disease, um, which is not spread from person to person, was in this case spread from a contaminated cooling tower, something that does central air conditioning in a very poor community in the Bronx where many people um, were, uh, were susceptible infection but we uh, we used all kinds of uh, had all kinds of meetings uh, to talk to residents about what we knew was going on and we that wouldn't be possible now but there were also um, call-in town halls virtual town halls where people were given a phone number and they could call in and ask questions I did those jointly with the political representatives of those communities so um, you know it's really important to people that they feel that they're being given full information, um, that people are telling them what they know and that it's accurate, that they're not being misled, uh, and that, um, you know, the technical prowess of, of the department be brought to bear. So, Dr. Bassett, in our, our final minute or so here, you've been um, quite outspoken on the issue of um, prisons and prisoners related to this current outbreak that we're we're dealing with, uh, co-authoring a New York Times op-ed, calling on Governor Cuomo to release more people from state prisons. Um, why, why do you think that call in New York has not been heeded and... Um, is there a way to uh, sort of characterize the, the the cost of not doing that? Well, the, the cost will be measured in lives. It already has been uh, with uh, people who uh, may not even have been sentenced, in the case of Rikers, uh, effectively experiencing a death sentence. And uh, so that's, you know, there's a real risk. Uh, 
to people who are incarcerated because the recommendations to wash your hands frequently and to stay six feet away from people just can't be reasonably met. The only way to tackle that is to reduce the numbers of people, uh, to cut the population. Anyone who is not a credible risk to public safety should be uh, released. And then, of course, there are other risks, right? These are closed units. People, the people who work there come in and out. They may get infected. They may bring it home to their families if their transmission starts occurring within the jails or prisons. And then when people get sick, they not only have a human right and a moral right, to, they have a legal right to getting uh, treatment and they become, you know, uh, an added burden on an already overburdened healthcare delivery system. Uh, so... Just- just very you know, quickly, is, is, is it your experience that, that elected officials typically will, will sort of draw a line at listening to, to public health experts like yourself when it comes to the criminal justice system like that? Is that is that a pattern you've experienced? Well, yes, of course, uh, because every politician is worried that they'll let somebody out who does something bad mm. um, and that that will haunt the rest of their political career. Uh, but... Uh, you know, I, I do understand that, but I think we have to stick to the fact that in settings where there is no doubt death penalty, uh, having the numbers of people that we have in our prisons and jails amounts to uh, putting at people at risk for a death penalty, and that's not right, and that's more important uh, than you know than uh, worrying about your future career. Doctor, we have maybe 60 seconds left. I just want to ask, you mentioned early on that you think this probably is a once-in-a-century event, and I'm wondering, can we have some confidence in that? There have been some speculation that with globalization and global warming, it's possible that epidemics like this could come up more frequently than every 100 years or so. What do you think the <laughs> now, future Here I like? thought I'd been gloomy enough. <laughs> well, you're right. I mean, if you take an inventory... Of, you know, here we thought uh, that all we had to deal with going forward were non-communicable diseases, things like diabetes, high blood pressure, and the number of, uh, of you know, of new, new or new strains or newly resistant strains of various organisms uh, is quite a catalog. And it, uh, I would, I, I, I think it does have to do with the kind of disruptions that have come with urbanization, globalization, climate change. And, um, well, I, you know, I, I think, though, that, that this is the first time we've seen anything that has spread around the globe like this um, since the influenza epidemic of, of 1918. Um, but uh, we, we do need to be more prepared uh, because... There is a possibility that these things will happen again, but this will come to an end. And uh, even uh, though the you know the numbers of people who suffer and the numbers who die are too high, uh, most of us who get infected uh, will recover. And I think it's important also to keep that in mind. Well, there you go. You did uh, leave us with at least a, a somewhat positive and, and hopeful note there. Uh, Dr. Mary Bassett. <laughs> well, everybody needs to stay safe. The, you know, these uh, big issues, uh, this should be a chance for us to, to look at them and, and try and address them. 
you know that the estimates are that some 13 and a half million people will lose their health insurance by June because of job loss. If there were ever a time to make a case for single payer health insurance and how crazy it is to have our health insurance tied to our jobs, this would be it. And many other changes also have to happen. Uh, well, thank you, Dr. Mary Bassett. We will thank we you. will um, probably call you again in the coming weeks and months. Um, former New York City Health Commissioner Dr. Mary Bassett, who is now the director of the FXB Center for Health and Human Rights at Harvard. Thank you so much for the time. Thank you. Well, that was uh, Dr. Mary Bassett, the former city health commissioner, now uh, leader of an institute at Harvard University. Before that, you heard Senator Mike Gennaris talking about the cancel rent movement and questions around how Albany is reacting to the economic impacts of COVID-19. Thank you so much for joining us here on Maxim Murphy. We'll be back next week on Wednesday. We'll have James Parrott, the economist, to talk broadly about the economic impacts and the job market impacts of this disease. Until then, please stay tuned to GothamGazette.com and CityLimits.org and this WBAI station. And until Wednesday, have a great week in the greatest city in the world. 